Today on IFS Talks, we have the privilege of meeting with Dr. Robert Grant. Dr. Robert Grant is a physician specializing in internal medicine, pulmonary medicine, and HIV medicine. He has more than 30 years of experience with research and clinical practice in sexual health and pulmonary medicine. He's also a certified internal family systems therapist and teaches ketamine-assisted IFS therapy. He's completed a certification in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy at CIIS and trained in ketamine-assisted psychotherapy at CREA, the Ketamine Research Institute. He's also started the Healing Realms Ketamine Clinic in 2017. Dr. Grant also serves as an investigator for an FDA-approved MDMA trial at UC San Francisco and has assisted with FDA-approved psilocybin trials for people living with HIV. Dr. Grant was recognized by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world in 2012. Bob, welcome to IFS Talks, and thank you so much for being here with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me, Tisha. It's a pleasure for me to be here. Thanks much, Bob, for willing to sit with us, and many, many congratulations for all you have been doing, both as a physician and a therapist. What parts come up for you today, hearing your bio? As you read my bio, I, I have a part that comes up that's embarrassed, that you know said, wants to say, oh, not really. And, <laughs> um, and yet there's another part that is um, proud of how I've led my career and, and followed um, my dreams where, wherever they led. And I've done a number of different things in my career, um, basic biomedical research, and now um, psychotherapy research and practice. And um, it sounds uh, dilettantish to one of my parts. And then there's another part that says, uh, good for me for following my dream. So uh, I have lots of parts up around all that stuff. But thank you for reading it. I'm flattered and it sounds as though you've had a really interesting journey throughout your career, throughout your life. I'm curious about your pivot from uh, medicine into into more healing, psychotherapy, and 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 then also into doing the the ketamine assisted therapy. So I wonder if you could just share with us a little bit about your path? I really think of it as a pivot back to how I started on my calling uh, toward healing and toward medicine. Um, I was, uh, when I was 20 years old, I was uh, living in uh, Lima, Peru, um, studying comparative literature. Uh, I was fascinated with the um, boom in Latin American novelists. And I thought that there was some, some ways that they were, um, in the same vein of creative work as, as some North American novelists, including Toni Morrison and Faulkner. But while I was there, I was became aware of uh, the curanderos who were working in Northern Peru. And I read an anthropological account of, of, a, uh, of a ceremony where a child had been afflicted by something they call susto, 
uh, we might call it PTSD, that this child had paralyzing fear and was not readily communicating with his family. And this uh, healer brought the whole family together and sat with them all night. They used a psychedelic medicine called San Pedro, which is a cactus. And all night long, there were affirmations of the family, affirmations of the child, and, and, and just a communing as a family all brought together for the purpose of healing themselves, not just the child, but the whole family. And by the next day, uh, the report showed um, that the child was better. And I said, oh my goodness, this is powerful. Now, at the time, I, I, I underestimated the power of the medicine in that. Um, I just saw uh, how beautiful it would be that uh, a whole family would come together and say affirming things all night long in a sacred space. And, and, and that, you know, struck me, resonated me, that would be healing. So I was uh, called to medicine at that point. I knew that I wanted to be a part of that process. And it was in that moment that I decided that um, I could read and write poetry and enjoy it and pursue my interest in comparative literature and, and understanding novels of the Americas. And, uh, but my profession really, uh, I wanted it to be in the healing arts and medicine. And then I uh, chose to go to medical school, landed, at UC Berkeley and UCSF in their joint medical program in 1982, just as the HIV AIDS epidemic hit. And, and you know, it's 22 year old uh, person. And there was, uh, this was a compelling call for me, HIV and AIDS. I knew that this was gonna be a long-term epidemic. I knew that it was striking at the heart of our humanity, of our desire mm. for human connection, of my desire for sexual connection and that this virus was, um, was a bad bug. It was uh, really exploiting our humanness uh, to spread and, and ultimately kill people. Now, so I, I, I knew that I had to work on that. And so I spent 35 years working on HIV. And um, I think we as a community of HIV researchers and study participants were enormously successful. We quickly identified the cause of AIDS. We developed um, rapid uh, antibody and now direct tests for the virus. We uh, developed treatments. Uh, eventually, those treatments became highly effective. And then most recently, um, I led the development of uh, PrEP, or the HIV prevention pill, which allows people to stay uh, free of HIV, um, uh, even if they become exposed to it. And so uh, it was in... And, and, and that was work that uh, I thought was important. It was all based on some uh, belief that uh, additional technology and, and invention in the field of technology would ultimately end uh, the plagues of mankind, uh, most particularly for me, the HIV epidemic. And then 2014 came and several things happened in 2014. One, I realized that we had all the technology we needed to end the HIV epidemic. And, uh, and, and yet I also realized that we weren't ending the, the epidemic. In 2014, there was no change in the number of new HIV infections and there was very little change worldwide in the, mm -hmm. in the death rates. Um, and yet we, we had the technology, we could test for it, we could treat it. Um, 
people who undergo treatment would have near uh, normal lifespans and, uh, and we could prevent it with a pill. And, and yet we weren't doing it. And so I became interested in why we weren't doing it. And I found uh, the problems of human connection, uh, stigma yeah. mm-hmm. and shame and fear and anxiety and depression and substance use uh, disorders and all of these things which uh, ultimately allowed HIV to come into the human community were now uh, allowing it to propagate and to continue despite us having all the tools we need in our toolbox to end it. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then a very pivotal thing happened. Uh, my closest colleague um, died that year mm-hmm. and he died of AIDS. And he died uh, three months mm-hmm. after he stopped his uh, life-saving antiretroviral therapy. And, you know, I, I really took it personally. I try not to take things personally, but I took that very personally. Yeah, it's painful. Yeah. And I, I thought, you know, what am I doing? If, if I can't um, help the, a man that I love more than any other man in the world to stay alive, then why am I trying to help anyone else? And so... I went into a crisis. I gave up my laboratory job and took a job uh, in service in clinical care. Uh, and that's where I learned about PTSD and the fact that we don't have um, a lot of good therapies for it. And then uh, quickly became aware of MDMA, uh, which is being developed by the MAPS organization as a treatment for, for um PTSD, and it was through my training uh, as an MDMA guide uh, in the MAPS uh, context that uh, I learned about internal family systems, which was um, a therapeutic modality that uh, Michael and Annie Mithoffer uh, used to support uh, the MDMA healing process. Mm-hmm. And I knew immediately that I was um, going to be interested in psychedelic medicine and uh, internal family systems. So. 2014 was a pivotal year for me. So how, how did the IFS model landed on you? Well, I, <laughs> I first heard about it when I was being trained uh, as uh, uh, in MDMA psychotherapy and uh, the offers explained to me the idea of parts and the idea of, of working with parts and that the parts um, uh, you know needed to be identified and focused on and I, I have to say when I first heard about it I didn't get all of the messaging right and so uh, but I knew that I was interested in it because I knew that uh, that in myself I was always a passionately ambivalent person and I never understood but I am passionately ambivalent, which means not that I don't really care. No, that's apathy. Uh, Passionate ambivalence is very different. It means that I have polarized parts, one of which really cares strongly about one thing and another one that really cares strongly about the opposite. And they're always sort of up whenever I have to make a decision, whenever I have to, to, you know, guide my life. And and I never really understood it. uh, yeah, and 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 you know, when introduced to parts, I said, "Oh my goodness, I've got parts." And actually, uh, but but I didn't get it exactly right. It was very um, very important actually that I, I signed up for an Esalen training with Dick Schwartz, and and I explained to Dick and, and this you know 
environment, or 30, 40 IFS therapists and me, you know, total neophyte. <laughs> they said, yeah, I think I made a list of all my parts. And somebody explained to me that the idea of self-leadership is, um, is that there should be a captain in charge of the boat and the parts are the crew of the boat mm -hmm. and, uh, or, or they're on the boat. And, and I said, well, I've got my list of parts and I want to throw them all off the boat. <laughs> and then, you know, people had to explain to me, I said, no, no, all parts are welcome. You need those parts. Exactly. The captain is not going to be able to manage the boat without the parts. <laughs> so you need them. And so, you know, I started my process of learning to love my parts mm. Beautiful. And, uh, and, and learning to help them identify what their roles uh, can be, should be, instead of the ones that they got stuck with because uh, they weren't getting enough attention. It sounds like the, the grief and the loss that you experienced was so profoundly important and maybe also your your personal growth and healing. Did you come to use IFS and the MDMA therapy working with your own system through what you've been through? Well, MDMA is being developed as a, uh, as a research tool. It's still investigational. It's not yet legal in um, most of the United States and the entire United States. Um, so the legal psychedelic that we do have is ketamine. And so I became interested in, in exploring this space um, using a legal psychedelic because I am a licensed physician and I want to keep my medical license. And so um, keeping it within the legal realm is uh, important for me. <laughs> so in the ketamine space, yes, um, I can see uh, that uh, ketamine and and uh, it seems other psychedelics um, really do enhance the IFS process um, in several ways. Um, I think it invokes these psychedelic medicines invoke self-like qualities. Um, based on the research, it's clear that MDMA invokes uh, compassion and connection, and uh, ketamine also invokes a certain amount of clarity, compassion, and connection, as well as uh, creativity at, at higher doses. Um, people tell me that psilocybin and LSD also invoke um, self-like qualities of, of um, connection and, and creativity and calmness, uh, depending on the dose and the setting. And so I think that the psychedelic medicines do really help people get into self-qualities, and they also can help um, relax protectors, uh, protectors that might all uh, otherwise uh, override um, our process. Um, you know, there may be an inner critic that has a lot to say. Uh, ketamine in particular can help that inner critic um, calm and relax and rest, and then it gives us enough of a reprieve so we can do work with um, exiles that wouldn't otherwise be able to come forward because there was a, a one or another part that was chattering. Um, so, so yeah, that uh, uh, ketamine in particular and other psychedelic medicines um, do allow for uh, facilitating the IFS process. Bob, it might sound a bit confusing. How does a compound, a substance that is dissociative, can help us to feel more in self, 
can you help us with this? Well, I think I think it does it several ways, and it does it, um, it, it depending on the dose. But mm -hmm. I think it's mainly acting by allowing protectors to rest. And so protectors that may have a lot to say or a lot to think, uh, protectors that may uh, force us to avoid uh, certain memories, certain exiles, um, those uh, will relax. Uh, during a ketamine uh, journey and, and allow people to come uh, attuned with exiled uh, energies and parts and also more into self where they um, are able to feel more confidence. And the dissociation, it's true that ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic when given at high dose. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And at, at lower doses, it, it's dissociative in the sense that it can uh, allow some dissolution of uh, parts and uh, protective parts and managers and, and firefighters that would otherwise dominate consciousness. Okay. So coming back to basics, what is exactly ketamine and what is exactly the psychedelic power of ketamine? So ketamine is a is a medicine that's uh, was invented in the early 1960s, um, and it was used uh, as a uh, as a safe anesthetic. It was actually developed intentionally as a safe anesthetic, um, and it was first used uh, during the Vietnam War by medics who, um, if one of their companions was injured and obviously in pain, they would have to be evacuated, um, and, uh, but usually after some time. And so during that time, between the injury and the mm -hmm. evacuation, there would be a lot of pain and suffering and fear. And um, the approach uh, prior to ketamine was to give people a lot of morphine. Morphine's an opiate, it addresses pain, but it also depresses blood pressure and okay. can depress pulse. And so if someone's bleeding, it actually made it harder for them to survive that injury and be transported. Yeah. Uh, ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic. Mm -hmm. It actually tends to increase blood pressure and pulse uh, temporarily and, um, and allows people to stay awake so that they can protect their airways, they can breathe, mm -hmm. um, and yet they dissociate from the pain. Uh, separate the mind that, uh, or the self, if you will, separates from the parts of the body that are experiencing pain and injury. And so that allowed for safer transportation. So that's how ketamine started. Um, mm -hmm. By the early 1970s, it was FDA approved as a dissociative anesthetic used in high doses during surgeries. And it's still the anesthetic of choice for uh, C-sections and for children and a variety of other uh, procedures uh, uses. It's used in high doses for anesthesia. And then it was noticed that, you know, if, if you use ketamine as it starts to wear off, people might hallucinate or might dissociate and they might have, you know, these dissociative or mystical or hallucinatory experiences. Mm -hmm. And those could be suppressed by using another medicine. Mm -hmm. But then other people notice that if you don't suppress them, those experiences, sometimes people who were depressed suddenly were no longer depressed. Um, and, and so it was in uh, 20, 
2010 that we first saw our first paper that showed that ketamine was uh, probably effective as an antidepressant. And since then, there's been multiple clinical trials showing that ketamine is safe and effective for treatment of depression and and suicidality. Yeah. Uh, and it probably has some benefit for anxiety conditions as well as including PTSD and obsessive compulsive disorder, eating disorders, um, a variety of other anxieties. When someone uh, receives treatment for depression or suicidality with ketamine, um, how much of the the process, I guess I'm just curious about the process, if it's if it's multiple um, times that people come to see you or if it's uh, just a, a one kind of guided experience. And I'm curious how, how much it's it's guided and how much the, the experience itself allows the person to unfold their trauma or pain or depression. Ketamine is um, is used in a wide variety of settings and a wide variety of ways. And so um, there are clinics that offer just ketamine without uh, any psychotherapeutic support. Um, they rely very heavily on, on ketamine's uh, inherent capacity to relieve some depression and anxiety. Um, of course, there always has to be some attention to the setting to make sure it feels safe, um, because as if people have a dissociative experience, it might be frightening for them yeah. if, uh, if, they, if they don't have that sense of safety. Mm-hmm. And from an IFS point of view, the protectors that are getting pushed aside or getting, if you will, forced to rest, um, when they come back on the scene, if, if they didn't consent, to, to resting, to getting pushed aside, if they didn't, if those protectors didn't consent, then they can come back in with a lot of anger and a lot of anxiety. And so yeah. in the settings where ketamine is used as a standalone drug, if you will, um, sometimes we see anxiety increase as depression is resolved. Um, and, and that can limit the duration of ketamine benefit. Um, beauty of ketamine is that it's very highly effective. Something like 60 to 70% of people will have a substantial relief of their depression and suicidality after a single treatment. So that's amazing, especially when you realize that the majority of studies have been done with treatment-resistant depression, which is, by definition, depression does not respond uh, well to oral antidepressant therapy or other standards of care. Now, that, that's the good news. About ketamine. The, the challenge with ketamine is that that benefit, that relief of depression, will typically last somewhere between one and 10 days. And then people slide back into uh, depression or anxiety wherever they started, um, often without quite as much suicidality, but still they, they may well become depressed over the following one to 10 days. And so the challenge with ketamine is how do you prolong that benefit of ketamine so that it can last a lifetime is the goal. Of course. And that's where I think IFS will play a, a, a transformation role. Um, because IFS, I think, is by its design intended to durably transform people's psyche. Uh, it's, it's, it's designed to change people's mind. 
So that, you know, once an exile is retrieved and unburdened, and if people can maintain contact with that exile, that same work never has to be done again. Um, now, sometimes there are other cloves of the, of the garlic that do need work. I, I would say not just sometimes, but all the time. So there is other work that needs to be done, but that particular work, once it's completed, often does not have to be done over and over and over again. So the intention of IFS, I believe, is to uh, provide durable healing. And, and, and so if we can marry IFS with ketamine, ketamine's strength is mm -hmm. getting people into self, getting parts to relax, providing temporary relief and depression that will not last, that's ketamine's strength. IFS's strength is leveraging that window of self to, pro uh, to, to provide durable healing. So that's why I think the two really um, will work well together and are working well together in my practice. And, and so, Bob, this is your experience with uh, the ketamine and the IFS collaboration is exactly that one that you just described? Yeah. Uh, in my practice, uh, the Healing Realm Psychotherapy practice, I started in, in 2017 mm -hmm. with a psychologist uh, named uh, Jessica Katzman. Um, mm -hmm. We've uh, now expanded the practice somewhat to include, you know, very high quality people, both psychiatrists as well as psychologists. And so we, we practice using uh, an IFS framework uh, plus ketamine, um, if ketamine is needed, uh, mm -hmm. to allow people to um, retrieve exiles, unburden, um, and to stay in connection with uh, uh, previously exiled parts. And, um, and I would say that we don't always use ketamine. We, uh, I will typically always offer, um, sometimes strongly suggest, a IFS session prior to any use of ketamine. And, mm -hmm. and uh, oftentimes I'll have people say, well, if, if I do this healing right now, I'll, I'll never need ketamine. And, and, and they had a manager who really wanted to use ketamine and they don't want to heal until they get a chance to use ketamine. Oh. <laughs> so I'll say, it's okay. It's okay. You can heal using IFS now and, uh, and, and, and there will be opportunities to use mm -hmm. ketamine later. You don't have to delay your healing uh, because you know, you want to fulfill this desire to be healed by ketamine. Um, yeah. In fact, ketamine will not heal you. Oh, you yourself uh, will heal yourself. And uh, it can happen today. It can happen next week. But I know it's going to happen. So I, I, I am a hope merchant for my clients. And I don't promise them that they'll get better on any particular day or even in my presence. Um, but uh, I, I do encourage them to think of of hope and how, you know, one way or another, uh, the person's self is going to uh, heal themselves. Mm -hmm. Bob, so help me to understand if I get it right. So you use IFS both as a map to go through the ketamine trip and then as a model in the process to consolidate the process, the transformation? Yeah, thank you for asking. And, you know, this is a work in progress. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'll tell you what I'm doing currently. And I'll also tell you that it's different than it was a year ago. And it's going to be different a year from now. So I'm, I learn from every patient. Of course. 
everything I say is provisional. Um, but what I can say is that I use IFS concepts and process throughout the, uh, the arc of psychedelic uh, medicine, including use of ketamine, currently only the use of ketamine, um, because that's the one legal psychedelic that we have, but that's about to change. So during preparation, uh, IFS concepts are, are, are really important for consent uh, in particular. Um, usually people will come to me with a very strong manager who's up and that manager wants ketamine no matter what. And so, you know, and we always ask people to sign written informed consent. And I, and that's to protect us legally as well as to assure that the person is, that some part of the person is consenting. And so the manager just signs that form, no problem, you know. But that's just the beginning of the consent process because we know that that one manager is elbowing all the other protectors aside to make sure that this job gets done. We're going to get ketamine. <laughs> and so uh, I spend time with people in the preparatory phase, asking them about what other parts are up, uh, you know, and what other parts might have been pushed aside when, when they consented to have ketamine. And, and I encourage people to speak for those parts. And, and, you know, and I'll say, you know, the, the concern that's coming up for you, um, you know, maybe, a question, um, you know, it may be perfectly rational. Um, uh, and also I would encourage you to speak for parts that, that are concerns for you that, that you may not want to speak for because they don't sound uh, fair or safe, but, you know, please speak for your parts. And so as we, as we try to achieve a situation where all parts agree to use the medicine, uh, it's a concept I learned from a psychiatrist in the IFS community, Frank Anderson. He says that as a psychiatrist in his practice, he doesn't prescribe any medicine. And he wasn't talking about psychedelics at that time. He says any medicine, mm -hmm. unless all parts agree. And, and I like mm -hmm. that concept because it really invites us to explore what other concerns may be present, what other questions may be present, and, and even get into some exiles who may you know, have concerns about anything that's dissociative because they know that when they dissociated in the past, traumatic things were happening and, 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 and they may have parts that don't want to go there ever again. And so hearing from all those parts um, to try to achieve agreement is really an important part of the consenting process and is also important um, for preventing the anxiety and, and, and pushback that can occur after a psychedelic journey. And this is common. We hear it from MDMA researchers. We see it in ketamine where people will undergo a very beautiful psychedelic process, but then two or three days later, they're just full of anxiety and, and, and self-dread and, and disappointment and anger. And, and the way I conceive of that is that the protectors who got pushed aside and didn't really agree to any of this have come back and said, you know, how dare you connect with these exiles that I've devoted my whole life to suppressing, and and um, and, and they can be angry. So, getting their permission from the uh, protectors prior to the journey is really important. The only thing I'll, I'll add, though, is is sometimes it's just not possible for all parts to agree. Um, I have a system like that. I, I said I was passionately ambivalent about most things, and I just don't think that there's ever going to be a situation where all of my parts are singing the same song in tune. Mm -hmm. Of course. 
and yet, you know, I, I, I do know what consent looks like and for me and consent looks like for me where, you know, most of the parts agree and the other parts are just willing to let it happen. Just say, okay, it's fine. I don't believe in it, but okay, we'll, we'll let it happen under these conditions. And the conditions that are helpful or for those protective parts are often that it's just a short-term thing. You know, it's going to affect you mm -hmm. for an hour to an hour and a half, not longer. When you come back, you'll come back with all your parts, all your facilities. They may want to be different for you, but they're, you know, we're not trying to push any part out of your system. So that's usually an agreement that we want to make very explicitly as part of the consent process. So anyway, preparation often involves a, a full IFS um, pro, uh, journey as well. Often that is, you know, we don't necessarily get all the way through to um, retrieval and unburdening, but um, at the very least, we want to be able to connect with some of the protectors that are up and get there and make sure that they know that we're coming in a friendly way. We're not trying to shove them aside, um, but seeing if they're consent to to step aside and rest for a little bit. And then during the ketamine session, that depends on the dose. Uh, at the higher, more psychedelic doses of ketamine, people don't really feel like talking for about an hour. And so we don't ask them to talk. And mostly IFS process is a talking process and doesn't have to be by the way, but um, mostly it is. So we don't ask people to talk when they're on a higher dose of ketamine, okay. which is still low dose compared to what anesthesiologists use, um, but still. Mm -hmm. But at the very lowest dose, I, I do know practitioners who have a use ketamine, a very, very low dose that is psycholytic. It's enough to allow some rest for the protectors okay. and yet people are able to do a IFS process. I would caution that, that the IFS process should be a very patient. Mm. And sometimes we ask, uh, you know, we'll give an IFS-like prompt, like, how are you feeling toward that part? And it might be three or four or five minutes before someone will answer and saying, I'm feeling compassion. So being willing mm -hmm. to sit and wait for several minutes for someone to respond when they're under the influence of a low dose of ketamine is important. Mm -hmm. So in that way, I'll just add, ketamine-assisted IFS therapy has really helped me, I believe, become a better IFS therapist. Because mm -hmm. I know that during ketamine, I have to be very patient. But I also know that in the absence of medicine, sometimes we have to be very patient. Sometimes people have to just go inside and, and be there for a while before they can even begin to imagine or, or answer a question like, how are you feeling toward um, something? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. being patient, I think, is a good skill to have and it's particularly important in the psychedelic arena beautiful and then toward the end of a ketamine session the medicine's only really active for about an hour and a half but at the end of it is a beautiful opportunity for what looks more like a conventional ifs uh, therapy where people can really get in touch with exiles, hear their story, um, help them to leave that place if they're ready and self by qualities, the whole arc. And I will say that if, if we get through that whole IFS arc, 
that's often the person who never needs to come back for more ketamine. Mm-hmm. It has changed for them. We don't often get to that. And I did make the mistake at one point several years ago where I thought that whether someone could get to that place of retrieval and unburdening depended on my skill as a therapist. And, and I realized that no, it was taking too much credit for that process. That It really is their system, which is either has done whatever work was needed to, to retrieve and unburden um, or, or, or they weren't ready. And then it wasn't really up to me. It didn't really depend on my skill. It just was even more important for me just to, to witness, to encourage, but not to take blame or credit for any of the work that they were doing. And then the other, you know, other IFS types approaches that I think are really valuable is um, the humility approach. Uh, People in the psychedelic communities really are struggling to try to define what a good guide is. And what I just said, I think is coming directly out of IFS that, you know, a good therapist or a good guide is not someone who's one step ahead of their client. (laughs) That's not the point. Um, The point is to really be able to hold space and to stay in self while um, the person is undergoing their process. And so uh, I think IFS really encourages to be um, the way um, uh, some of the pioneers of psychedelic psychotherapy have taught us. Um, Stan Groff in particular comes to mind and he advocated for a very non-directive kind of holding of space for people in uh, psychedelic sessions. And, and it's it's very reminiscent of how we're taught as, as IFS therapists to just let the person's process lead, let them their own self lead, um, rather than have the therapist kind of take over control and try to push them one way or That makes me curious as to um, whether you've dipped back into um, your time in Peru and the template that you witnessed and read about there, does that get in, does the work that happens with a, a shaman and with the family, does that get incorporated into, into some of the work that you do now? I hope so. That's, that's a learning edge uh, for me. And, you know, I've, uh, I've, I've really enjoyed my training in internal family systems, but um, I'm not a family therapist and I haven't done the intimacy from the inside out training yet. So that's next on my agenda. So I am, uh, but I, I, I do know that my practice is starting to attract more families. And, and typically it takes the form of parents who have uh, a young adult uh, who's suffering and they'll, they'll come to me and they say, Dr. Grant, we really want you to work with um, our son or our daughter who's struggling. They're, you know, 17 or 18, you know, please fix them. <laughs> and, and I, I'll usually ask uh, to work with the parents for a while, just to find out all of their concerns, find out what parts uh, in them are, are up because of the child suffering. And, and, and usually there's a lot of work there. That, that can be usefully done that ends up creating uh, some space for the young person to grow and to evolve in their own healing process. And, and there have been a few families where that's evolved into group sessions using IFS. Um, 
And I'll just have to say that I, I look forward to doing more of that, um, but it's not an area of expertise for me and, um, and I want it to be. So yes, I think I am migrating back to the Peruvian model. Not that I understand that particular model really very well at all. It inspired me back in the day, but I'm not an expert in that either. Um, but I do want to work with families and I want to work with couples. And, um, but that's, that's a learning edge. Uh, I don't have all the skill that I, that my parts think I need to do that well. Bob, it looks like you feel IFS is definitely a good map, if not the best map, to help us assist with ketamine-assisted treatment. Are you engaged in training therapists to, to assist ketamine treatments? And do you want to share something on that? Yeah, um, uh, that's also a work in progress. We've had several, we have uh, several uh, therapists um, come through and some student uh, therapists, um, largely from the California Institute of Integral Studies where I trained uh, back in 2016. And then uh, as well at uh, the University of California, San Francisco, they've sent some psychiatrists over to work with us. And so I am starting to train uh, people, but it is a work in progress. And And I'll say that that I agree with some of my colleagues who say that the best psychotherapeutic paradigm to use is the one that you know best and the one that you are feeling the most skilled in. And I, I, I have tried to take that very eclectic approach, um, but over time I'm becoming more convinced that formal training in IFS is valuable because it, it teaches a, a lot of the basic principles that other psychotherapeutic traditions don't teach as clearly. Um, the, the need for non-directive attitudes uh, is one that I mentioned before, yeah. very important for psychedelics. The, the need to stop and, and, and have consent uh, at every step along the way is also a very important principle of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy in general. And it's also embedded in IFS. It's what we do when we're doing our work well. Um, you know, being open to all all different parts, the, the thoroughness of the consent process, you know, where, you know, yep. yes, people check the box, they sign the form, but that's just the beginning of the consent process. In IFS, we ask consent uh, every step along the way. Is it okay that we talk about this? Yep. Is it okay that we yep. uh, focus on this other part? Is it okay? You know, it's like um, every step of the way. And that's mm -hmm. important for psychedelic medicine as well. I don't know that other psychotherapeutic traditions have those same emphasis. And I, and I will say that some therapists feel like, you know, it's like I'm getting paid for my time here. I need to be offering something, some guidance, some wisdom, some something. And it ends up making them yeah. more directive than the situation really calls for. And, and But, you know, you say, is IFS the best process? Well, if I were to try to answer that question, it would imply that I know everything about all these other processes. <laughs> and, and I don't, I mean, I really, I've done a little bit of training in a variety of different psychotherapies, but I really only know IFS. And I do believe the, the a dear friend and mentor for me, Rich Simon passed away just last year. Yeah, you know, he, yeah. he, he, he wrote that, you know, in the end, as people achieve more and more mastery, there's a certain amount of convergence. And so an outstanding IFS therapist, yeah. It start to look a little like an outstanding CBT therapist, but only after you know 10,000 hours of, of devoted work 
to clinical exactly. medicine. It's like that. Yes. We'll say that I think it's the clinical medicine that that teaches us that we can read and we can do research, um, but it's face-to-face -face time with our clients. That's what we learn from, and that's where we get this deeper, more embodied wisdom from. IFS, mm -hmm. though, I will say, I, I really feel like the training did um, emphasize a, a number of the principles that have always been emphasized in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. So I think it is, if anyone is considering additional training, uh, to enhance their psychotherapeutic process, I, I would strongly encourage IFS because I think it's a beautiful community. I've done a lot of my own healing in that community and I've done, um, mm. and I think it offers um, the right principles and the right sets of skills for um, people who want to do psychedelic work as well. Beautiful. As for the future, Bob, you will continue doing ketamine-assisted therapy, and also you are a respiratory physician. Do you have other plans for the future? Well, I want to work less hard. Uh, I have, a, I have a, a part that thinks that I'm only lovable if I work hard. Same here. It, it's, it's learning slowly that there may be other ways that I'm lovable, um, but it's a work in progress for me. But yeah, respiratory therapy and uh, you know pulmonary medicine really came up again in my life during COVID. Um, I was called back to work in the intensive care unit yeah. for COVID mm -hmm. patients, something I hadn't done for 10 years. Um, I did love that work and it was really frightening for me. So, um, and I know that I, I wanna do more uh, work with ketamine and IFS. And uh, once MDMA becomes legal, then uh, I also wanna work with that uh, medicine. And, and I want to I want to also, you know, do more training for myself in the IFS world. Um, learning to work with couples and families is um, something oh. I feel called to. And yet I know that there's deep knowledge out there that, that I've not yet had a chance to learn and share. And so, yeah, I'm looking forward to more uh, teaching and learning about IFS. I really enjoy it. Yes. Beautiful. So, Robert, thank you so much for having us and for helping us with your experience and wisdom to understand these new treatments for depression and other conditions. Very, very hard to work with. It was a joy to be here with you and Tisha, and I, I'm sure we will keep meeting and sharing this model, our work and our lives. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was a really wonderful and informative talk. Thank you, Anibal and Tisha, and um, thank you for inviting me to talk about my favorite topics in the, ever, which are IFS and, and psychedelic medicine and how well they play together. And so, um, yeah, I appreciate it.